Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I am your fearless leader, Clay Travis, who has not yet stacked his best-selling book beside him and doing so now. Uh, I hope all of you are having fantastic Fridays. I hope we're all going to get super rich with the weekend. Tough loss last night on the gambling picks. 43 was the final score, total points. We had 43 and a half. I hope that is not an omen for the upcoming weekend of gambling picks. I'll get to the college football and the NFL gambling picks. Well, let me go ahead and give them to you right off the top, just in case you care, uh, and you are a desperate, degenerate gambler like, frankly, I am. Uh, I've got the Titans plus three and a half. These are yesterday's numbers. Titans plus three and a half at the Browns. Chargers, Vikings. I got the Vikings minus one and a half, the over 53 and a half. Pats, Jets, the under 36 and a half. Saints, Packers, minus one and a half. Broncos, Dolphins, minus six and a half. Cowboys, Cardinals, plus 12 and a half. What did we learn last night, Thursday night football? 49ers, best team in the NFC. We're early. We're early in the season. But the 49ers and I think the Cowboys are the two best teams in the NFC so far. Now, a lot of times the September best team is not the team that advances to the Super Bowl. So take that with a caveat. Certainly, Trayvon Diggs injury, guys can get hurt. There can be a substantial impact to the overall quality of a team during the course of the season. But I would say right now, 49ers best team in the NFC, second best team, I would put the Cowboys. Brock Purdy continues to perform. I had to pick him up in my fantasy league because I had Aaron Rodgers and he tore his Achilles tendon. Uh, but the 49ers, 3-0, I have them as the best team in the NFC with the Cowboys close on their heels. Um, all right, I want to talk. Washington Post's got a story up uh, about the pizza festival that Dave Portnoy is throwing uh, in the Brooklyn area. And I read the full article. You might have just heard us talking about it live on uh, the radio program, but it's turned into a controversy because the Washington Post, they put two different food reporters on this story and they're covering a pizza festival like it's Watergate. They're giving more attention to Dave Portnoy's pizza festival than they did to, you know, Hunter Biden's illicit sexual encounters with uh, with tons of women on the uh, on the the laptop, and one paragraph in particular jumped out at me. Uh, and there's this guy named Joe. I'm not even going to give his last name. I don't want to give him the the credit. This guy named Joe. Uh, he's a Minnesota-based mathematician uh, who has positioned himself as the conscience of the food and restaurant industries. Now. Save some chicks for the rest of us, Joe. I don't know I've ever heard more of a panty-dropping uh, focus than being the conscience of the food and restaurant industry. Uh, this guy was the person who'd been leading the charge against those involved with the pizza festival. He's posted regularly on his Instagram account with its 33,000 followers. By the way, what a huge group of losers. Uh, writing that pizzerias, influencers, and trade publications are showing that Portnoy can continue his violent misogyny and campaigns of abuse, and they will continue to support him. Uh, he doesn't want the pizza festival to happen. And I think this is important. How much of cancel culture actually makes America better? When I read this paragraph, it was like, Suddenly, I had this epiphany, and I said, okay, let's pretend that everyone who wants to be involved in cancel culture, all the people going back through past jokes of comedians, 
all the people that are constantly in a huff over what somebody tweeted or what somebody posted on Instagram. I'm talking about words, not actions, right? By and large, words. This is what people tend to get the most fired up about. How much of cancel culture makes the world better? Let's just take this guy, the food and beverage conscience or whatever it is of America as he has branded himself. If he had his way, what would happen? There wouldn't be a pizza festival in Brooklyn this weekend. Who benefits from that? Just think about it. And this is just one example of it. But what they are trying to do is not just cancel individuals. They're trying to cancel their ability to do events. And if this guy had his way, there wouldn't be a pizza festival this weekend. That might sound like a small thing. Oh, everybody decides to run and hide and they're not going to do the pizza festival. But I would imagine that the pizza festival will mostly, mostly create more fun than would exist without the pizza festival. General position. Much of what is going on with cancel culture is the erasure of fun and the replacement with nothing. This is really important, I think, and I don't know how often I've seen it distilled this way, but as I read this article and I focused on that paragraph in particular, if guys like this get their way, then there is nothing. Like, what would be replacing the pizza festival is no pizza festival. So something that might create a small amount of joy and aid and abet people who create pizza in terms of being able to better monetize their business would be replaced by nothing. And I think that's often the case with cancel culture, right? It's the replacement of something that some people take joy from with nothingness. They're actually attempting to erase something that could create joy and more happiness with a non-existent thing. Um, and I think we're giving these people way too much power. If you want to run your own pizza festival, which you believe is more morally justifiable, then why don't you create your own pizza festival? And this is the context writ large. If you don't like OutKick, more power to you. Why don't you create your own website and your own media company that competes with OutKick and is more successful? That's the marketplace. But simply trying to shut something down while providing no alternative is not in any way beneficial to the nation as a whole. It might be beneficial to you individually because people pay attention to you because you're a social justice warrior. But the end result is actually worse. And I can build this further, right? If we use as an example the argument that police needed to be defunded, this was an argument that mostly left-wing white people made. As a general rule, the most ardent supporters of defund the police were left-wing white people. What was the result? Less police, more violence, more death. The absence of something and the replacement with nothing makes things worse. 
And we very rarely hold the people accountable who demand this, right? If you're a rich white person who was demanding that police be defunded and they were awful, you didn't leave and live probably in a neighborhood where there was a desperate demand for police. Because one of the things you learn very quickly is rich white people trying to make decisions for often poor minorities don't make the life of the poor minorities better. Instead, what they make the rich white people feel is better themselves because, oh, they're social justice warriors and they're so much better than everybody else. But they actually make the lives of the people they claim to care about worse. Black Lives Matter indisputably led to more dead black people than would have existed if Black Lives Matter had never existed. And it continues. There are thousands of black people who are dead today that would be alive if Black Lives Matter uh, did not exist. That's the reality. The more active Black Lives Matter has been in a community, the more crime has increased and the more dead black people there are. This is basic data. It's just like you can't even talk about it because people are so afraid of being called racist. This is the number one fear of white people. It really is. And when you actually dive into these woke left-wingers, what they're really arguing is we should define everybody we don't like by the worst thing that we think they have ever done, and therefore they are irredeemable. They cannot be worked with. They must be canceled. It's actually not a very liberal proposition. Right? The idea of our criminal justice system is what? You go to jail. You serve your time. You come out. You have paid your penance to society. And you should be able to redeem yourself. Cancel culture, and I don't wade into the waters of religion very often, but it's the antithesis of what I was raised believing. I was raised as a Southern Baptist. For those of you who don't know, Southern Baptist, typically a pretty conservative culture. But one of the foundational tenets of Southern Baptism is the idea of redemption, the idea of forgiveness. A lot of you, if you're Southern kids like me, were raised in a church that was bathed in the waters of redemptive justice and forgiveness. That no matter what you might do and no matter how awful it might do, might be, there is always available for you the idea of forgiveness and redemption. That doesn't exist in cancel culture because it's a profoundly irreligious perspective, which is founded not on the idea of human aspiration, frailty, and all of us trying to be better versions of ourselves, but on the idea that we must constantly and eternally judge people based solely on the worst act that they might have been involved in in the perspective of the social justice warrior. There is no arc of redemption. There is no moral pathway towards righteousness. You are perpetually defined by whatever the worst thing you did, by the sin that is irredeemable, that the woke warrior decides they must constantly put you in on the, on the cross over. Cancel culture is actually anti-religious. 
I don't know how many people have ever made that argument. I don't know how many people have ever made that connection. I don't know how, how many discussions there have actually been about this. It's pretty much the exact opposite of the religion that I was raised in. Worth thinking about, that's a deeper thought than certainly whether a pizza festival should exist, but just an easy idea for you to think about it in terms of the cancel culture is, how often does what the person wants canceled make America a better, more beautiful, more enjoyable, happier place? Almost never. Cancel culture warriors are almost exclusively awful human beings who are miserable and should be ridiculed, like this guy. I hope the festival goes well, uh, even though, as you guys all know, I'm not a long-term uh, uh, aficionado of Barstool or anything, but you should be able to throw a freaking pizza festival. Uh, John Fetterman. I feel like an old man on this, uh, but I want to just kind of tell you a couple of stories. I saw a picture, you might see me tweet it, uh, of John Fetterman in his shorts and his shirt that he was presiding over the Senate while wearing. And a little bit of a background story for you. When I was in college, I had two jobs. Uh, I worked, believe it or not, at Abercrombie & Fitch at the Pentagon City Mall. Uh, it's northern Virginia. Took the blue line out. Uh, went to work there. I don't know. I probably worked 20, 25 hours a week. And I also was an intern in Congressman Bob Clement's office, the 5th Congressional District of Tennessee, my hometown congressman's office. I was there every Friday for basically four years. Um, and uh, I got to do and see pretty much everything that goes on in Congress. Uh, it was a super fun and incredible experience. And I just want to use this as an example because I'm 18, 19, 20 years old when I'm telling these stories. I'm 44 now. Uh, but I, as part of my duties as an intern, was I would give tours of the United States Capitol to constituents. And this was in the pre-9-11 days. This is 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2000, before uh, when I graduated to 01, before 9-11. And I had a badge. And, uh, and I had a security access, and I could take people, when they weren't in session, I could take people onto the floor of the United States Senate. I could take them onto the floor of the House of Representatives. And every day that I went and I worked on Capitol Hill, by and large, I had a button-down shirt, and I almost always had khaki pants. We'll be right back. Got to take a little break here. We are rolling without kicking. You don't want to miss a moment. Stay tuned. Um, and I wouldn't have ever dreamed of going to Capitol Hill in shorts. I don't think I ever went. Uh, and I wouldn't have dreamed of giving a tour of anyone to anyone on Capitol Hill uh, and wearing shorts while doing so because I had to dress in a respectful fashion. When I worked at Abercrombie & Fitch, one of the rules was you were not allowed to have facial hair. I obviously have facial hair now. I've had a beard since 2001, 22 years of having a beard now. Uh, it's a long time, a generation of beardom. But I didn't have facial hair then. What was facial hair was popular then? The goatee was popular. In the late 90s, some of you will remember the goatee was a very popular uh, thing, and uh, and so was uh, primarily the goatee, right? I had a lot of goatees over the years, um, but I would shave it. Uh, applying and being involved for a job shows that you have respect for the job itself, and the people that you're working for. Um, this is a profound failure. And I'm a guy who likes to wear T-shirts and shorts as much as possible, but I wouldn't wear T-shirts and shorts to a wedding or to a funeral. It would be disrespectful. Um, I wouldn't go to a, uh, 
I wouldn't go to a high-end event that my wife wanted me to go to, let's say a, uh, well, let's say it's a charity event. I wouldn't show up in shorts at a charity event because I respect the fact that the charity event says there's a dress code and you should wear, maybe you wear a jacket and a tie. Maybe you wear uh, a, um, uh, whatever. And by the way, I have failed. I've been married nearly 20 years. Like a lot of you who are married out there, a lot of you have girlfriends. My wife has asked me probably 40,000 times, what should I wear? What's the dress code? And like 40,000 times, I've never had any idea. I don't know still what women are supposed to wear to basically any event. But I do know what men wear. And I almost exclusively go to events now in pants, in a button-down jacket, a button-down shirt, and a jacket. Right now, I'm wearing a t-shirt and shorts. I'm going to go out to dinner with my boys tonight. I'm going to be in a t-shirt and shorts. But if I'm going to an event that I respect and that I am a small part of, then I'm going to wear what is appropriate to wear to that event. The idea of the Senate changing 200-plus years of dress codes to try to fit John Fetterman is wrong also speaks to John Fetterman, I think, being fundamentally broken. He ran for office for a job where he knew there was a dress code. Um, it's weird. It's not adult-like to get elected to the United States Senate and refuse to wear pants on the Senate floor. It's actually an embarrassment. And again, I'm not, you guys know, a sartorial standout. There's never any time that I've worn an outfit and you guys have said, my goodness, you look incredible in that outfit, Clay. I'm not a fashion template. I barely know anything about fashion. But I respect basic institutional values. And I think the fact that Senator Schumer just unilaterally changed the dress code to allow one guy to dress like an ogre is an insult to everyone who has ever served in the United States Senate. And I think they need to fix this. And I think John Fetterman needs to resign. The guy doesn't have the mental and physical ability to do the job. His doctors came out and said, oh, he's fine. He had a stroke and he can't process information or speak accurately anymore. Communication is the job of a United States senator. Just like Dianne Feinstein should resign, just like in my opinion, Mitch McConnell doesn't seem like he's able to do the job either. John Fetterman can't do the job. And you can cry and you can whine and you can throw a fit all you want because people are judging you because you can't do the job. That's how the job works. If I lose the ability to speak, I wouldn't be able to host my radio show. I hope that doesn't happen for a long, long time. But if I tried to sit down in front of a radio mic and I couldn't speak and I couldn't do the job, it wouldn't be fair for me to be mad at other people for pointing out the fact that I couldn't do the job. It's a failure of John Fetterman's family that they allowed him to run. It's a failure of the Pennsylvania Republican uh, Democrat Party and a failure of the Democrat Party nationally that they still allow this guy to serve. If you can't do the job, you need to step down. If you have a torn, Aaron Rodgers is a torn Achilles tendon. He can't play quarterback. He's not doing the job right now. Being unable to do a job isn't some sort of badge of honor. 
Fetterman should step down, and he should be ashamed of the changes that he's making the, the, the entire Senate make on his behalf. Disney. Bob Iger is floundering. He is failing. Disney stock right now is at a lower price almost than it was 10 years ago. If you had bought Disney stock and held it for 10 years, you basically have lost money. Uh, this, the company can't, uh, the attendance at theme parks is cratering. They can't get anybody to go see their movies. Uh, ESPN's business model is collapsing. They're going to have to pay a lot of money for Hulu soon. They're talking about selling off all these assets. Marvel's flailing. Star Wars is failing. They had to shut down a Star Wars hotel. They've been feuding with Ron DeSantis and the state of Florida. Now Bob Iger says, quote, that Disney wants to quiet the noise and that being political is not healthy, quote, for business. You think? You know who's been saying that for a decade? This guy. You have destroyed the overall Disney brand by going political. And now they want to say they're going to quiet the noise and it's not healthy for business. You started all of this. This is important. Ron DeSantis didn't pick a feud with Disney. Ron DeSantis kept Disney World open for a year while Disneyland was shut down. No one has provided more benefit to Disney than Ron DeSantis who fought to keep Disney World open while Disneyland was shut down for a year over COVID, which posed zero risk to the vast majority of people who would have ever gone to Disneyland in the first place. Disney picked a fight with Ron DeSantis when they said, hey, kindergarten, first, second, third grade kids, we don't want sex instruction in schools. Disney decided to brand that don't say gay and to pick a fight with Ron DeSantis in the process. Disney picked a fight that has been destructive for its business, and now they argue they want to quiet the noise and that it's not healthy for business. You're moving too late. You, Bob Iger, have helmed a disastrous political-based tenure. Look, people want to go to Marvel movies, and they want to go to Star Wars movies, and they just want to be entertained. They don't want woke political noise interjected into their films. They just want to watch. Nobody wants to go watch Spider-Man and have Spider-Man walk out before the movie and tell you what he thinks about global warming or abortion. Just want to watch Spider-Man sling some webs and entertain everybody. Disney's lost track of that and I don't think they're going to be able to walk this back I think their business is in severe straits for years and years to come uh, the Dallas mayor Eric Johnson flipped to the Republican party uh, from the Democrat party why did he do that what was the rationale under which he made that decision well I'm going to read it to you I think it's kind of significant because I feel like Eric Johnson in many ways because I feel like the Democrat party left me from behind uh, his headline is, America's cities need Republicans, I'm becoming one. Uh, here's his opening paragraph. I've been mayor of Dallas for more than four years. During that time, my priority has been to make the city safer, stronger, and more vibrant. That means saying no to those who wanted to defund the police. It meant fighting for lower taxes in a friendlier business climate. And it meant investing in family-friendly infrastructure, such as better parks and trails. That approach is working. Uh, alone among America's 10 most populous cities, Dallas has brought violent crime down in every major category, including murder year over year for the past two years. Um, after all these wins and after securing 98.7% of the vote in my reelection campaign this year, uh, he says he has no approach to no intention of changing his approach to the job. 
but today I'm changing my party affiliation. Next spring, I will be voting in the Republican primary. When my career in elected office ends in 2027, I will leave office as a Republican. Um, he says he's been a, a Democrat for a long time, but I don't believe I can stay on the sidelines any longer. Uh, the future of America's great urban centers depends on the willingness of the nation's mayors to champion law and order and practice fiscal conservatism. Our cities desperately need the genuine commitment to these principles that has long been a defining characteristic of the GOP. In other words, American cities need Republicans. I, I agree with him completely. And Republicans need American cities. Uh, I agree with him as well. Uh, and I'd encourage all of you to read this, um, and I will share it with you. Uh, but look, San Francisco, all blue. Washington, D.C., all blue. New York City, all blue. Chicago, all blue. Anybody feel like those cities are well-run? Democrat policies, when they are not opposed by Republicans, end in disaster for cities. And that's what we're seeing everywhere. Uh, some of these blue cities are fortunate to have red straight state infrastructure around them, like Nashville, is fortunate to have a red state Republican majority. But my goodness, left-wing policies left unchecked are an unmitigated disaster. I give credit uh, to Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson for making the decision that he did. All right, let me get you rich. Here are my gambling picks. I want to make sure that all of you have these as we roll into the weekend because I am very confident in these picks. Now, uh, these numbers went up on Tuesday. They may or may not have moved in my direction since then. Uh, so here we go with 14 winners. By the way, for those of you out there who want to keep track, 23 and 19 on the year, 55% winning percentage through three weeks. Here we go with the week four picks. Rutgers plus 24 at Michigan. You guys all know, nobody is more of a supporter of Greg Schiano than me. This is a no-brainer. Uh, frankly, I don't think Michigan has played that well. 24 is too many. Uh, points to uh, to be favoring the Wolverines. Florida State, minus two and a half at Clemson. I think Florida State's the best team in the ACC. I picked them to make the college football playoff. I think they are going to win uh, on the road at Clemson this weekend. Auburn, Texas A&M, over 52 and a half. Um, look, the uh, Auburn uh, offense at times has showed up. The A&M offense has consistently scored more points. Defense hasn't been great. I think we hit the over here. Tap the veins, boys and girls. My blood bank guarantee Kentucky at Vandy, the over 49 and a half. Here's simple math for you. Kentucky, I think, has a very good chance to score 40 by themselves against Vanderbilt. Meanwhile, I think Vanderbilt will score 24 or more against Kentucky. Boom, we're talking about way over that number. Colorado, Oregon, the over 70. I like Oregon to finally uh, zap Colorado. Number's too big at 21, though. Uh, so I think that Colorado... Uh, is going to uh, is going to score some points, not anywhere near as much as Oregon, but I think we might get a late touchdown putting this number at stake. I'm going over 70. UCLA, Utah, under 52.5. Kyle Whittingham is taking over. It looks like Cam Rising is going to be playing. I think Utah wins, but I think it's low scoring. Ole Miss plus seven at Bama. Lane Kiffin, can he join Jimbo Fisher? Can he join... Um, uh, Steve Sarkeesian, I think he can. Third offensive coordinator to beat Saban. I don't like this Alabama offensive line. Seven is too many. 
Maryland minus six and a half at Michigan State. They fired Mel Tucker. They have destroyed the Michigan State football program. In the meantime, I think that Michigan State gets blown out by Maryland. Maryland gets to 4-0. Go Terps. Uh, UTSA plus 20 at Tennessee. I think this number is ticked up even higher. I'm not sold on the Tennessee defense. I'm not sold on the way Tennessee has played. They played awfully against Florida. They were not good the week before against Austin P. I don't think that's going to change. Wake Forest minus three and a half against Georgia Tech. 4-0 for Wake Forest. Dave Clawson's team came back from a big deficit. I think they get it done. Arkansas plus 17 and a half at LSU and the over 55 and a half. Love the Razorbacks here. Last three games have been decided by three or less. Four of the last five by a touchdown or less. I think this one is going to be close. Also like the over. Wouldn't surprise me if LSU scores 40. Wouldn't surprise me at all if Arkansas scores 30. Ohio State, Notre Dame. Give me Notre Dame. Uh, plus the three and a half in this one. I think Notre Dame is going to beat Ohio State outright. Marcus Freeman gets his first signature win for the Irish in South Bend. And then Iowa, plus 14 and a half at Penn State. Penn State has scored 30 or more in 10 straight games. I think that comes to a close. Penn State wins 27 to 17. There you have it, kids. We are going 14 and 0. I will see you on Monday. DBAP. Unless you need to SBAP, I hope all of you have fabulous Fridays. Thanks for always supporting OutKick.